everyone. Welcome to another edition to the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. And this weekly segment, we're going to feature the uh, top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subjects and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 3rd, 2022. So Mike, I'm going to kick it off and I'm going to bring up one I saw on HelpNet Security. Um, it's dealing with office exploits, uh, continue to spread through more than any other category of malware. Um, this is one of those typical articles. They always do a good job covering some other report that came out. So mm -hmm. recommendation right off the bat is always grab that report, right? Um, it's cool to see their quick summary and the bullets they pull out, but sometimes there's, there's some more meat in the reports. that's beneficial. Sure. Um, but the big thing here, honestly, uh, that. I, you know, just stands out to me is they, they talk a lot about the office exploits, but they also bring up, you know, all the malware that exploits browsers as well. Right. And it kind of is like the the same beat, same drum kind of thing. You know, they're going to, attackers are going to go after what people are using um, to be right. effective. Uh, and an example of that is when you actually looked at the stats in the report when it came to the browsers, uh, mm -hmm. I noticed that, you know, Chrome was hiked up there as far as stats go. And Microsoft Edge was pretty low. Um, and I thought that was interesting, but it really means two things. Um, Edge is a Chromium-based browser, so I figured there'd be some cross there, but either people aren't really using Edge as much and Chrome's just dominant. Sure. Um, and so they don't, they're not getting numbers that way or it's just not being targeted because of the popularity, right? Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to see that stat of Edge versus Chrome in enterprise environments. Um, mm -hmm. I know everywhere I've typically seen, it seems to be that Google Chrome is the, the browser of, of choice. Um, right. I don't know if that's from a deployment perspective or you know, ease of use, but yeah, those stats are interesting. Um, you know, this, this article is talking about office exploits, but really highlights that you know, the big surge in malware exploiting browsers as well. So it seems like there's a little bit of that, as you mentioned, that cross-pollination. Yeah, and then the the other thing that I liked that was thrown in the report that I didn't really call out in the article itself um, was they made a big call out to where out of all the malware scripts went up uh, more than anything else, um, okay. and it really dominated right. And all their on all their detections, and this is from the WatchGuard report, was 88% of the detections they were able to see were all based on scripts, and they said 99.6 of those were PowerShell. Mm. So when okay. you talk about what visibility you want and capabilities you need, um, obviously, if you do a really good job of PowerShell scripting, uh, it, it gives you a, a slightly better edge. I would say I wouldn't say it solves all your problems. Sure. Um, but you know, it's it's a very common tool that you know we we see, and I think too, Log4Shell shell kind of drove those numbers up probably. Um, but so you think that's a big increase in that that percentage? Um, What's the alternative to scripts then? So what would be the alternative for these these uh, actors? You know, it'd just be the specific binary payloads that they're able to just detonate, right? Um, through other means of execution. But, you know, it's tough because those are what, um, you know, when you go from like living off the land or using your own tools, you know, you're competing with all these security vendors tools when you, when you make your own payloads 
um, and binaries versus when you're able to live off the land a little bit to figure out what payloads will work best before you deploy them. You know, you, you always have to use something there and PowerShell just seems like the one of the easiest go-tos. I mean, you got PowerShell, WMI, sure. um, things like that. But, Python, potentially. And is it easier to obfuscate over the long run, right? Um, if you're if you're talking about heuristics, signature-based detection, um, mm -hmm. it would seem like you know minimal changes to a PowerShell script or Python script or WMI would change some of the heuristics about what that thing is doing, right? Um, that's why it's it's better to look at behaviors and saying, look, this hash of this script ran. Um, or, you know, again, PowerShell logging, PowerShell visibility, uh, yep. it's, a, it's a big key to be able to protect yourselves um, based on these type of reports. Yeah, and the last last note I, I saw, and it makes me, I just always think about this, is, you know, they, they mentioned the Emotet re-emerging. Re you know, we saw this, um, luckily, when these things happen, a lot of the behaviors are reused, but they usually will add, then you're just looking at, well, what's new? Because something re-emerges, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, they usually add new capabilities. But the, the big thing to think about is it's not shocking, right? If you're a, a bot owner or you're a group that you know manages these types of bot type malwares, um, if you have the time, money, and interest, you're gonna come back. So take down, just get in your way. It's only if financially you lose as well as you don't have the time or the interest anymore do those takedowns really kind of wipe you out. But usually you're replaced by something else because something else fills that space. But you know that was just a big mention that, you know, People haven't noticed Emotet coming back. It's kind of made a, an emergence again. Sure. Yeah, and, and kind of circling back around to what we do, I think for us, um, being able to, again, to your point, track the behaviors, understand what Emotet's doing from a, a, a top-level view allows us to still support the hunts that we're building for those type of, of threats, right? And it really does allow us to right. cast a wide net against a variety of different malware strains based on the behaviors. So, awesome. Yeah, so that's, that's all I got on that one. Um, all right. All right, so we're going to move yeah. on to the next uh, article. Um, again, help net security. Uh, this is the top issues driving cybersecurity. So again, um, kind of a poll-based article. It was really interesting to understand what issues, organizations, and environments, and and CISOs and these managers are seeing across the board. Um, the poll was interesting for me. Uh, I was expecting to see a couple of these a little bit higher up the list, but real quick, I'll run down a couple of the, the ones that stuck out. So growing number of cyber criminal, criminals was at the top at 52%. Mm -hmm. Privacy concerns, trust, 74%. Variety of attacks, also 74%. And then we go down to scale of attacks, uh, reliance on data, quantifying security issues, the breadth of skills, and then compliance with regulations. Um, it's an interesting report. I was expecting to see the skill issue a lot higher up on that that poll. Yeah, I was um, thinking the same thing. And you talk about uh, quantifying security issues, building trust, privacy concerns. A lot of it has to do with the I think the skill set of the people in these organizations and how they how they go about protecting uh, their resources, right? We talk about zero trust. I think it was mentioned in the article. Yeah, they um, know a lot. That has always been a security framework and a mindset, right? And it's, it's policy driven. I think a lot of organ, um, 
organizations are now reliant on products to help drive that that process. I mean, we were both at Black Hat, um, was at RSA, Zero Trust is a big buzzword, right? And a lot of products are bringing that in as a as a, a concept where it used to be it's a it's a it's a framework that we're going to approach our security posture. Um, and so again, it was really interesting not to see that that lack of skill set higher up on the list as we know that the cybersecurity industry, I believe the last article I read was 4.5 million jobs, open jobs right now, um, and possibly growing. So Scott, do you have any uh, you know comments on, on this article in particular? Yeah, so I, I dug into their source and it was a CompTIA <clears throat> report and they actually had some other interesting things they mentioned as well. Um, but initially, you know, when they were calling out the cybercrime rise and then the variety of attacks, that the, already when they called those two issues out, or um, top concerns. One, it made sense. Cybercrime, if there's money to be made, cybercrime is gonna go up and with ransomware being as popular as it is, it, it just kind of went yep. hand for hand. Um, but the variety of attacks, you know, it's something I had a conversation with someone earlier um, this week and it was about this kind of same topic is the variety of attacks changes a lot for that like initial vector, right? Sure. But, but it doesn't really change as much. It becomes more of that chess game when you start focusing on, you know, the middle of like that miter spectrum and the verticals, right? When you look at execution, persistence, lateral movement, the C2 kind of side of the house, that's when things change less, more manageable, right? So then it becomes better to look for those types of behaviors um, versus when you talk, when you, it's scary when you're like, well, gosh, there's millions of ways people can get in. Well, of course there is because businesses sure. have to operate. Um, so there's, there's those risks you kind of manage, but you do a better job with finding things. And that's why I think threat hunting is so big or so successful in, in dealing with the, the risk of actually someone landing and persisting in your environment. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting thing is they called out, uh, one of the points is 39% are de deploying more diverse technology tools with SaaS monitoring and management making a substantial jump. I think that's kind of the tail end of the move to cloud. Um, you know, from a, at least from a logging and monitoring perspective, right? There's a, there's a technical debt and cost for logging in general. Um, I'd be curious to see how that shift transitions over the next couple of years with the cost of logging and data retention mm -hmm. uh, as a big sticking point to, if I'm going to put my logs in the cloud, I want to be able to understand the length of time I can go back and search those logs. Um, and the cost to that ingestion, because there's a cost for everything. So it's really interesting to see these kind of shifts and the focus and to your point, initial access. I mean, it's it's opening up a brand new landscape. I think, you know, in a couple of years, the next big topic is gonna be, you know, if one of those cloud providers gets popped, right? Um, you know, that that's a scary moment for a lot of organizations that I don't think is talked enough at least in this article, or it just hasn't happened yet, it's not top of mind. Um, but that's going to be a real big inflection point to, you know, to some of these uh, these top issues that are, are driving cybersecurity. Yeah, I know people try to hide behind, well, they've basically pushed the risk somewhere else, right? It's their risk exactly. to manage, but it still is going to impact you, right? So exactly. it's kind of a scary topic if it gets to that point. Yeah. Something else I did notice in the report that I thought was an, uh, interesting, like they had a bunch of different things they reported on in there. And one was really about um, how people are starting to change their mindset where it's not, cybersecurity isn't like a protective coating. 
just mm -hmm. really has to be kind of in the overall cybersecurity strategy. And they had six points that, you know, to consider as far as building cybersecurity into those strategies and, you know, the, the to make cybersecurity work um, mm -hmm. in an organization. And, you know, the first ones are kind of obvious, protecting critical assets, protecting the privacy of customer data. But then it starts going on to like minimizing disruption in operations or demonstrate trust externally outside of, you know, or maintain compliance, you know, compliance always hits that list when it comes to business requirements. But then the last bullet they, they talked about in that strategy is, is ensure productivity. You know, something that a lot of security professionals get bent on is we need to do things the best and most secure way. But when productivity goes down, um, then you might not be doing what's best for your business. So that's like that, I think, is such a critical point for how you work with the business. Sure. Yeah, there's, a, there's just that give and take. Again, you talked about risk. Um, there's a risk to everything. There's a business operational mindset that has to go into security, like you're mentioning. Um, you know, I think some of these tools that build in the compliance and policy, like some of these zero trust tools, might be actually um, identifying those those issues and helping out, right? Because it's kind of built into the product the process. It's not a, a mind share thing. It's kind of uh, innate to that organization. So, yeah, really good points. Um, you move on? Yeah. So I'll grab the next. So I'm going to hit the one um, dealing, it's from Bleeping Computer and it's new malware backdoors and the VMware ESXi servers to hijack virtual machines. So in this, um, this article, they really cover two different types of malware names, named things, virtual PETA and virtual Pi. Um, and really it was an investigation where it looked like an APT was in an environment and they were able to upload their kind of backdoor um, or, or tool set in, in the VIB packages, which are, you know, I guess packages used in ESXi services to, you know, add different capabilities and things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one thing that was really interesting is um, obviously you have to have administrative privileges to do this. So it's not an attack that's like, hey, all your servers, you have to worry about that. But because they changed the payload to, or the VIB package to put their payload in, obviously the signature doesn't work and they changed some other artifacts in the XML descriptor. So it looked from like the human eyes perspective, more mm -hmm. legitimate. But, you know, just like a lot of products, if something doesn't match right with the signature, it tries to prevent things like that from being loaded. So I was looking in this thinking like, how would you detect this type of behavior in your own environment? And so I was like wondering what kind of visibility exists and things like that. And I did see where, you know, it's a it's a KB article for the VMware site. You know, if you were to Google auditing ESXi shell logins and commands, yep. they actually show you how you can enable logging and where that logging sits. But then they also saw like, what does normal VIB installs look like? And that's where I can see where it, people use the ESX CLI um, yep. interface command line. And it's like software VIB install or software VIB update. And then you like, point to the, your destination, right? But yep. in the case where the actor had to actually install these things, they had to do the dash dash force flag because otherwise it would complain about the signature and not let it you know, upload. Okay. Okay. So it seemed like a very easy way to see someone trying to abuse this. And there's probably other things if you're able to get the logging from the command line that you wouldn't expect to be handled or pushed there, right? If, if you were to just kind of normalize what normally happens, you can probably even do anomalies um, to the ESX CLI command line um, to find other things if there was someone who's trying to attack your ESXi server. But I feel like that something 
people should pay more and more attention to because you know you know people going to the cloud obviously but people are virtualizing a lot more so i feel mm -hmm. like these hypervisors you kind of have to put the same scrutiny on them like you would a domain controller because of what they potentially can give access to in your environment um depending on what you virtualize obviously but i, I imagine more business processes are being pushed to virtualized instances for reliability and scalability um, and so I think this is a really good place to start kind of getting some of that visibility. And, and in this case, um, looks like you might be able to catch some attackers pretty easily too. Yeah. I think another point that you made was the, uh, having to open up the port on the ESXi, uh, within the infrastructure for that reverse listener. Right. So, I mean, that, that could be another place that you could track a, uh, malicious user or actor, um, cause there are a, a standard set of ports that are typically open for ESXi. So if they're doing mm -hmm. a non-standard port for communication, and a lot of times what's interesting is if you've set up your infrastructure the right way, these ESXi servers natively typically won't have outbound internet access, right? And so they're going to have a management port. They're going to have some other mechanisms to reach out to get to the internet. And typically that should be handled along a firewall so there's a lot of things you can do to protect this from happening and at least using this as a, a mechanism to, to create a backdoor. Um, there's a lot of other things you can do to protect and monitor these servers, right? Because you mentioned a lot of times you might virtualize your domain controller within your virtual environment, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, and again, if an actor already has root access to the ESXi, a bunch of other stuff that it can do to, to make your life uh you know crazy you know so I, I love these articles these are super novel ways to do things i think this actor is really smart to to set up a backdoor in a place that you would never really go to look right um and so it's it's things like potentially monitoring the network activity of your asxi instances um the command line arguments that are run on those boxes um, you know, there's there's some best practices that can help, but to your point, if you're thinking as a hunter, let's go look at the things that really stand out as a, you know, a behavior that would not typically be done on an E6I host. As, I mean, I've, I've managed these servers in the past. Typically, I'm not, I'm not doing a lot of SSHing in or logging into those boxes mm -hmm. on a daily basis. There's not a lot of extraneous traffic going to and from those, those servers. Uh, not at least not within the, their enclave, right? So those are really good indicators to say, look, something might be going on because you're typically not going on uh, command line on those boxes. So the one question I, I did have for you, Mike, because I don't have as much experience as you managing these things, does the ESXi server have services or processes that use Python a lot, or is Python just available in instances where it's installed on Linux? Uh, I think some of the scripts used for vibs and the installs of those mm -hmm. are backed by Python, I okay. believe. Um, I just saw a lot of malware that was leveraging Python type of attacks in a lot of these instances when I was just looking at like, well, what kind of other attacks are there with ESXi? And mm -hmm. then my thought came to like, well, you know, how much Python is actually utilized, you know, in these environments specifically? I know that there's tons of management stuff that I saw people can leverage. Right, um, because right. Python's there, but I didn't know as far as like the common interactive ability and that kind of stuff is, you know, so that was something um, else I thought about looking at. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could check real quick <laughs> for the podcast. We might do an update next week or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's leveraged, right? Uh, Python's mm -hmm. a 
standard mechanism for scripts and a lot of the uh, user interaction with ESXi. Um, so again, it's another place to leverage. And again, the visibility there is important because um, if you're, again, root on a box and have access to Python, they could have set up their own backdoor listener just using Python and a web server, right? So right, right. Um, there's options. And this is just a novel, a pretty interesting novel option that they've used. Right. Yeah. So that's how I got on this one. All right. Um, so kind of in the same vein, but uh, there's another article on HelpNet really discussing uh, detecting fileless malware infections is becoming easier. So definitely a uh, uh, you know a, a headline that kind of grabs your attention. Um, and I think, you know, they really kind of go into more detail around uh, some of the legacy tools. One of the really interesting things is they call out is that the average analyst is, uh, you know, more highly educated, um, mm -hmm. but not an expert in memory architecture. It's a really good point. Um, and then they kind of mention the system engineers, right, um, and the expertise in writing code. So I think... Again, we talked about the people problem. Um, we talked about in previous conversations, the analyst role and what they're really dealing with on a day-to-day. -day. And you know, it, it's, it's hard to sometimes dig into these type of attacks. If we're talking about fileless malware, there's an expertise that kind of goes into it. Um, so from your experience, and you've been in these shoes before, um, Kind of, do you agree with what the article's talking about a little bit, or you know, are you seeing these tools pulling out that expertise and allowing the analysts to do their job, but really offering them up a lot of that information ahead of them having to go in and do that work themselves? Yeah, so I feel like a lot of the more advanced kind of EDR tools are getting better at scanning memory resident things. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that I'd say because Fileless is still a common technique, so obviously it still works in a lot of places. You know, otherwise the technique would become more stale. But it seems like a common thread in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things when I think about trying to find fileless from a you know hunting or alert perspective is is not so much on once the malware is fileless, but all the techniques that are used to make it fileless, right? So, you know, like yeah, I don't have the all the command lists you can use in PowerShell off the top of my head, or how you can like take raw code and push it into memory and then you know make it executable but you know the quick search you know i was able to see how you can use a combination of cert util and powershell to basically pull a payload and put it directly into memory right mm -hmm. so understanding those relationships on certain commands that can be used based on what tools and types of execution and what execution allows you to just execute things into memory those are things to start like you know building kind of a okay well, what's normal in my environment when i see these things used what's weird, stuff like that. Um, you can kind of like assess uh, out some of these things, especially if you know like the specific chain of events when you look at the reports that have fileless malware being used, like they did this, 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 and then the fileless malware was loaded. It's like, okay, what are those precursors, right? Um, those are usually what I focus on, but we used a lot of memory analysis, not so much because it's not scalable to sit there and try to scan your memory in a large environment, you know, continuously. Um, but it was, that was our kind of our triage you know, phase. If we usually had something that had enough alerts or a high enough alert where we need to go investigate, 
Um, we utilize F-Response, but there's other tools that let you basically remotely mount memory as if it was a shared drive, and then you can run yeah. tools against it. Um, and we have some scripts that we would run that would kind of suss out, pull out the executables, do some other things so that, you know, if anything, it gave us a place to start if we really need to dig in more or it can easily give us the uh, sense of, hey, this might be more of a false positive based on whatever, but we have enough data to make a really competent decision. That's what I really liked about the memory analysis piece was you had uh, so much more visibility into what you're looking at than trying to just stitch logs together. Um, right. But right. it took some training, right? So it wasn't just as easy as, hey, if you run these things, but you know, once you kind of set that framework in place, the training is a lot easier. Um, but you know, it's, it was pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. So those are some really good points. I think, um, at least in my experience with some of the EDR and XDR tools, having the ability to press a button and get a memory dump and mm -hmm. have it present it to an analyst in a way that they can kind of understand what's going on in those boxes rather than having to, you know, back in the day, it was, we have to go to the machine, run a proc mm -hmm. dump, pull that off, use some very specific software to be able to um, analyze that memory dump and then have that expertise to break down what each of those things means. And, you know, even, you know, years ago, if there was an infection or malware, it was what you turn off the computer, right? Right. <laughs> Plug it from the network. So a lot of that process has changed because these tools are getting better, allowing us to be able to actively triage a machine or a box. Um, and not just take it offline, right? Mm -hmm. And just, you know, that that's it's 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 good to see that we're we're advancing our kind of our process and capabilities in that manner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just over time, giving the analysts the tools to be as effective as they can is the appropriate approach, right? And so you now don't have to go out necessarily and hire the tier three, tier four DFIR guys in every shop and you might need those for triage but at least your analysts can present that case to essentially escalate or not given that information on these edr tools yeah i mean the expertise sometimes it's just a mapping exercise anyways you know so if you have a tool that can help map what these values mean you know right. in an understandable way then you know you can you know expedite your analyst's ability to learn and make decisions and take action so it's really cool when tools can do that Absolutely. Cool. Uh, hit the last article of the day. Yeah. So this one is kind of cool. Well, cool for us, I guess. But it's a bleepingcomputer.com article, and it's the Microsoft confirms a new exchange zero day used in attacks. So this is kind of that. If people haven't heard it yet, the the previous proxy shell, some mm -hmm. things still lingered. So now there's the proxy not shell um, attack that this kind of uh, touches on. Basically, it's kind of like the change of the attack, but this one requires an authenticated attacker to basically be okay. able to perform the same things. Um, then this is cool to me only because it's kind of like what we preach with threat hunting, where if you're, if you're hunting the right behaviors, then usually your work can be reused and, you know, holds value much longer than if you were doing signature based things. And that's that's the same case here. So when you have something that's partially fixed, you know, you do what you can to patch things to get things in place. But if something isn't quite right still, those behaviors you're looking for um, for the effect of if someone takes advantage of this, 
you're still able to hunt on. And so when we saw this pop out, you know, we dug through some of the stuff that was related to the proxy shell to see, well, what what has changed? And through our analysis, there wasn't much that's changed. So we were able to leverage um, some of the previous hunt packages that we already built and say, yep, no, this still covers the same idea because all they did was change part of the attack, but the effects are the same. And that's what we focused on was that behavior. Um, so in this case, we actually pushed um, two. So if you if you haven't gotten into our Hunter platform, um, you can check this out. If you go to cyber cyborgsecurity.com in the top right, sign up and you can put podcast for how you heard about us. But uh, if you put in the search bar proxy not shell, you'll see a bunch of packages and there's two community ones that are available. One looking for suspect child processes to the ISS uh, worker process. And then another one is the Microsoft Exchange server auto discover um, JSON abuse. So uh, something worth checking out, but you know that was what I really liked about this was it just validates kind of what I do every day, what we do, um, and why threat hunting is still part of the conversation. You know, even today, as as you know, I think it's growing and people are starting to understand what it really is. So, what are your thoughts on on this one specifically? Yeah. So, and remind me. So the proxy shell, the initial CV that came out a couple months ago, I believe. This was a this was a sideloaded module in IAS or an exchange, is that correct? Is this the one that was like a sideloaded? I, re I remember there was uh, you know three different vulnerabilities they chained together, and I don't remember the specifics. Okay. Um, yeah. But so you're saying this one is it was it was a a change in behavior and process, but not a complete paradigm shift yeah so you didn't need to be an authentic authenticated attacker last time you were able to get um identify what was like i think they call it the dm which is okay. the exchange version of that user and then you get their sid and those in combination kind of authenticate you um sure. so that's how that but now they fixed i think that piece um okay. if i read it correctly um so now you kind of have to be authenticated but how you do the execution piece of the end it's still you're still there. able to do the same execution piece which is kind of the behavior we were focused on Sure. Okay. Good. So you still you would need that initial access into that environment in that organization to to be able to execute the proxy not shell piece, the, the the newest version of this. Or you need to be authenticated. Is that correct? Yeah, you need to have valid credentials, I would think, or you know whatever they you know pass, but you'd have to have a valid set of um, authenticated okay. user. Yeah. Um. Again, it just goes into that. You know, if you're authenticated. But there's still methods of exploiting these uh, these type of services. It's really interesting. So the initial patch I think for this was to fix that the DM and SID issue. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what they do for this. Um, if if there's going to be another patch out to fix this authenticated user attacking the same exploit, or if they kind of say, look, if you're already in the environment, you know. <laughs> uh, you have the capability to do a lot more. Um, it, it's really interesting, though. Like these type of exploits pop up. I think this is almost similar to the um, the uh, the backdoor for VMware a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. I'm authenticated, but I have these methods of doing these things that I can exploit the box. Um, yeah, I want to say it comes in the same bucket, right? The common behavior that, that we we were seeing, we're kind of building some things around where the how people could use this to export people's mailboxes. Yeah, and, and that gets into you know, some serious lateral movement and 
exploitation. All the inf yeah, information gathering, right. you know, all right. the types of stuff you need to like, you know, understand your environment and do more in the environment. So, yeah. And so that's going to be that advanced persistent threat, right? They're not they're not jumping in using this exploit and then, uh, you know, potentially going down some sort of ransomware campaign. They're spending right. time to gather a lot of this information to really hit you where it hurts, or just to get data information IP. Um, so that's why it's, I think it's important to your point, being able to hunt for these types of behaviors on a consistent basis, be proactive about it, um, really helps to catch these, the advanced persistent threats, not the, the people coming in and trying to exploit immediately and get some sort of um, you know outcome. So right. um, yeah. No, I think uh, again, I kind of put these in the same bucket where it's it's really that the people are going to do lateral movement, information gathering, using these type of exploits for that that manner that really, really, really tie into the threat hunting methodology and why it's so important. So, yeah, well, I think that's right. a wrap for the five articles this week. Yeah, it sounds good. I appreciate everybody joining us uh, for our Out of the Woods podcast. Um, and we hope you join us again next week for um, our, our fun with more to talk about when it comes to threat hunting. All right. Thanks, Scott. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Mike.